In our time together last week, we began a new series here at Cross Connection Church in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we are considering there Jesus' teaching in a passage that is called the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5 last week, we saw Jesus describing the way into true righteousness, a righteousness that is greater than or that exceeds the surface level religious righteousness of the religious leaders of Jesus's day, those who were referred to as the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus speaking to a group of his followers, his disciples, who were just normal people, fishermen, farmers, carpenters, and people like them. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In contrast to those words there in Matthew 5, 20, Jesus opens his sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, just a couple paragraphs before that, by saying this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we have a clear contrast there between those two passages, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The religious behavior of the hyper-religious scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, according to Jesus, their religious righteousness was not kingdom of heaven worthy. But the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says in verse 3 of chapter 5, is given or it's granted to those who, as Jesus says, are poor in spirit. I can guarantee to you that this was novel and even revolutionary as a teaching when Jesus gave it to those people who were listening to him on that day. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were the teachers and the keepers of the law. For all intents and purposes, they were good people. If you were able to just watch and observe the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were probably the, the most righteous sort of people that you would see, the good people. But Luke's gospel says of this group, the religious scribes and Pharisees, that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and as a result they despised other people. Those are among the great pitfalls of self-righteousness, arrogance and really an unkindness, looking down upon other people. And such things are not accepted in the kingdom of God or in heaven. Therefore, in Matthew 5, Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount by, I believe, giving us insight into the proper path into righteousness and ultimately into the kingdom of heaven. True righteousness is that kind of righteousness that is imparted or imputed to us, to those who recognize their, their lack, their poverty of spirit. And as they, they recognize their lack or their poverty of spirit, they humbly grieve over that destitution, that lack of spiritual reality and vitality in their life. They, they are humbly grieving over their destitution. And then as a result, they hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not their own, which is ultimately given to them by Christ. It is my conviction that the law of God was given not to make us righteous. For, as Paul says in Galatians, if righteousness could come by the law, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come and die on the cross. Rather, the law was given, again, as the Apostle Paul explains in, 
in Galatians, in his letter to the church at Galatia, as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It's like a sign directing us to Jesus. Because the law is crafted by God or given by God to reveal my lack. It shows me that I am spiritually destitute and it causes me to humbly mourn over my lostness and then to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not my own. Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, it's very clear in that verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that the law helps me to see just how truly bad I am. Again, in Romans, Paul writes, Sin, through the commandment, becomes exceedingly sinful. That's found in Romans chapter 7. So what is Paul saying there in Romans chapter 7 where he says, sin through the commandment becomes exceedingly sinful? Well, the law causes my sin to be revealed. It's as if the law is like a bright shining light shining upon the depths of my brokenness and my sin. The law makes us to see just how really bad we actually are. Properly applied, the law causes me to say, like Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I say that the law properly applied does that because there are certainly ways in which we can use the law improperly, which is what I think the religious leaders in Jesus' day were doing, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, they thought and they taught that the law was given to make us righteous. Therefore, they taught that you had to keep the law perfectly, keep it in such a way that you would be holy and righteous before God. Now, of course, they were saying that according to their own interpretations of the law, which oftentimes were a little bit off from the true spirit of God's law when he gave it. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they taught that you could become righteous if you just kept all the right laws and all the right ways at all the right times. And because they believed that they were doing that, that they were blameless according to the law, as Jesus reveals in Luke's gospel, these individuals, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they, they looked down upon other people, they despised others. And maybe you've had that experience. You've maybe experienced it in your own life where you were keeping all the rules or you thought you were keeping all the rules in the right way. And so you thought yourself to be holy and perfect and just, and you looked down at other people because they weren't keeping the, law, the rules or the laws in the way that you thought that they should. Or maybe you were on the end of being judged by someone, that there was kind of a self-righteous person in your life who they thought they were keeping all the rules in the right way at the right time, and they looked down on you because you weren't. So right there is a good Pharisee test for us in this passage. If you find in yourself an arrogance and you think that you are all that and that you've got it all figured out and that you are a good person and then you mockingly look down on other people, you might be a Pharisee. And that's a dangerous place to be in because Jesus later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he basically speaks a curse against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He calls them hypocrites. So in Matthew chapter 5, as we considered last time, if you were with us, Jesus makes the law exceedingly weighty so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. He shows us just how heavy the law really is so that we can see that we have transgressed it in every point. Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5 that anger is like murder before God, which makes you and it makes me and it makes all of us murders before a holy God. 
Jesus teaches that lust, desiring after some person, maybe of the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever it is, he teaches that lust is the same as adultery. And by that, he renders every single person an adulterer. He says that breaking your vow, breaking your covenants and your oaths, he says that that's evil. And we've all done that in some way or another. So we've all practiced evil in that way. He teaches that retaliation is wrong and that we are to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us and to pray for those who despitefully use and persecute us. So when Jesus lays out the law in that way in Matthew chapter five, the law of God becomes exceedingly heavy so that we will see the reality of the depth of our brokenness and our sin. And it is my conviction that each of Jesus's teachings through Matthew chapter five, they are intended to bring us back to Matthew chapter five, verse three, to that humble admission of and grief over our own lack of righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, that we are grieving over the poverty of our spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, that we're mourning over our brokenness and our sin. Blessed are the meek, that we come to a place of humble acknowledgement of just how broken we are. And then we begin to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that can be given to us, not manufactured by us. And that is the kind of righteousness that we need to have. That's the kind of righteousness that ex exceeds the religious righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisee. And it is at that point when we are poor in spirit and we mourn over it and we are made humble or meek, when we begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's at that point that the saving power of God's mercy and grace begins to be at work in my life. And for the follower, the disciple of Christ, this is how God's sanctifying work is accomplished in my life. God wants to continue to do this work in my life on a daily basis as I walk with him. As I behold the Lord's glory, as he has revealed himself to me in the scriptures, in his word, as I behold his glory through his word, I see myself for who I really am in the light of his great glory. And as I begin to see who he is and as he really is, then I begin to see myself just as how far removed I am from him. And in that place of realizing my poverty of spirit and mourning over it and humbly confessing my sin to him, my sinful lack, I cry out to God in, in my despair, if you will, for his forgiving and transforming grace. And graciously, he cleanses and changes and transforms me more and more into the image and the likeness of his child into the image and likeness of Christ, that I would be more Christ-like. That's what God does when he brings us to the place of first trusting in him for salvation. But that's what God does every single step of our lives as we walk with Christ as well. When you walk with Jesus, when you get to know him in his word, he reveals, his, his word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, it is able to reveal to me the depths of my brokenness and my sin. God already knows it's there. God knows everything about me. But a lot of times I don't realize the full depths of the brokenness of my life and my sin. And so God's word exposes that. It shines a light so that sin will become exceedingly sinful so that I'll mourn over it and I'll call out to God for his righteousness and his forgiveness. And God then begins to work a work of transformation and cleansing. And as God accomplishes his work in us, he is making us more like him. That is God's goal. 
And, and this is key. God desires to magnify himself in me that he might glorify himself through me to others. He wants me to radiate or reflect his glory in this world. And as I shared in my message last time, if you were here with us, that's exactly what God wants to do with us at this time. He wants people to see him in us on a daily basis. And I, I said last time that our culture desperately needs to see the forgiving, cleansing, transforming grace of God at work in God's people. Now, with all of that, it's kind of like a, an inlet, if you will, to where we're going to be today. We come to Matthew chapter 6. The religious leaders of Jesus's day, the scribes and the Pharisees, we've already talked about them, they not only sought to be righteous by the keeping of the law, they also made a show of their religious adherence in the way that they lived their lives on a daily basis. Their aim in this was not to give glory to God. I mean, it's one thing to observe religious sort of rituals and practices to bring glory to God and honor God in all the things that we do. But that wasn't the aim of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Their aim was not to glorify God, but to receive the glory of men. This was true in the way that they would give to the poor, their charity. This was true also in the way that they prayed, and it was also true in their religious fasting. And it was also true in their displays of their wealth and what they considered to be a blessing, the blessing of God. So just as Jesus gives clarifying teaching on the law and its proper use in Matthew chapter 5, he gives clarification on charity and prayer and fasting and wealth here in chapter 6 as well. Jesus' teaching here is pretty clear. He's saying that the, the hypocritical religious leaders, they do this, but you are to do this. He, he says in the opening passage of Matthew chapter 6 that the religious leaders, they do their charitable deeds before men. And they do their charitable deeds before men so that they might be seen by them, so that they might get the adulation of people watching them. But then he says this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 3. But when you do your charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret. And your father who sees in secret, he will reward you openly. So the hypocritical religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were giving to the poor. They were giving charity. But they gave charity not because they were seeking to obey God or glorify God. They gave charitably just so they could get kind of the pat on the back of other people watching them. Like, oh, how spiritual is that person? He gives that money to the poor. But not only did the hypocritical religious leaders give charitably just to be seen by men, we also find in this passage the hypocritical religious leaders, they prayed in such a way so as to be seen by other people. They would perform long prayers standing in the synagogues or standing in the streets and they would pray really, really loud and they would do this purely to be seen by people so that people would go, oh, they're so holy and they're so righteous. And so they would pray to be seen by people. And Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, but you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret, he will reward you openly. So they're doing good things. They're doing charitable deeds. They're praying religious good things that you would expect religious people to do. But their intent, their, their motivation behind it was not good. It was not to honor God. It was not to connect to God. It was not to take care of the poor. It was to receive the pat on the back of other people. So in their charitable deeds and in their prayers, but also not only in their charitable deeds and their prayers, but also in their, 
They're fasting. The religious leaders, they fasted in such a way that they might appear to be more holy to people. And then Jesus says to them, to his disciples in Matthew 6, verse 17, but you, when you fast, anoint your head, and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Again, Jesus is teaching, I don't think it could get any more clear in this passage. The children of God are to provide charitably to those who are in need. We give to those who are poor, but not so that we can get some sort of earthly or external reward from people. We're not doing that so that we can be seen by people and they go, oh, you guys are so spiritual and you're so wise and you're so good. God's children, we are to pray to our father in heaven, but we don't do that so that we might be seen by people and we might be considered some notoriously you know, spiritual people because, oh, their prayers are so amazing and they pray for so long and so loud and all these things. Disciples of Jesus Christ, we fast. Now, what is fasting? Well, it is abstaining from food. Most of the time when you fast, you're abstaining from food or some other earthly pleasure to satisfy our appetites to satisfy your flesh. So you would abstain from those things to afflict your soul or to bring your body into your control, to bring your appetites under your control. So disciples and followers of Christ, they, they fast, but we don't fast so that we can be seen by other people and be praised for like, oh, you're so amazing for what you're doing and your faithfulness. Notice that Jesus in each of these passages, he says, when you do your charitable deed or when you pray or when you fast, he does not say if you do a charitable deed or if you pray or if you fast, he says when. And I think there's kind of a side point here for us to consider for Jesus. It seems that these are normal and regular behaviors for his followers, charity, prayer, and fasting. As disciples, we enjoy our relationship with God and we express our relationship and connection with God and our devotion to God through giving and through prayer and through fasting. These are normal sorts of things that Christians are to do, but none of these things are to be done to receive the admiration and the congratulations or the adulation of other people. However, God does reward openly those who give and pray and fast. And that's a whole nother story or study to consider, but something to think about there in that passage. Now, all of these objects of religious devotion, fasting, prayer, and giving, they are, or perhaps I should say that they should be a regular part of my Christian faith. As I'm following Jesus, as I'm a disciple of Christ, we pray. And in Matthew chapter six, Jesus even gives us a pattern or a model that we can pray. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You may have heard that prayer before. We call it the our father or the Lord's prayer. Very good model for prayer. And even a great prayer that you could pray yourself to the Lord. So it's important that we pray. And I think that fasting could probably be an important part of our lives as Christians and maybe even become a more regular part, maybe something you never thought about before, but there's some, some good things to think about having to do with fasting and then giving, giving to those who are poor. These are regular parts of our faith as Christians. It is a part of the practical and tangible living out of our mission as a church. Our mission here at Cross Connection Church is to live life in connection with God, one another and the world through Jesus. So how do we connect with God? Well, one of the ways we connect with God is through prayer. And you can even connect with God or really deny your flesh and draw closer to God through fasting. And then we connect with this world. We connect with others by giving to them charitably and taking care of their needs. But 
all those great things in Matthew chapter 6, the first two-thirds of the chapter, they're really good. Good things to read through. I hope you'll take some time later to read through Matthew chapter 6 on your own. But I want to spend the remaining time that we have today looking at the, the final third or the final section of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus talks about wealth. In the opening of our Unmasking Jesus series last week, I shared that I want to look at some of the passages in the Sermon on the Mount that I believe that God would have us at this moment in 2022, us consider for such a time as this. And Jesus' teaching on wealth is, I'm, I'm convinced, eminently applicable to us at this moment. Jesus has something he wants to speak to us as we are living here in the United States, in the West, in 2022. As I said earlier, the Pharisees and the scribes, they believed that righteousness was directly connected to their observance of the law the law as they interpreted it. So they felt that if they kept the laws and the ways that they interpreted it, then that would make them right before God. And not only did they believe that their righteousness was directly connected to their religious or their legal observance, but they, they believed that their righteousness was directly connected to their ritualistic expression of their faith as well. They were self-righteous, believing themselves to be blameless and perfect according to law. And they loved the praise and the glory of other people. They loved when people would congratulate them and, and admire them for their religious devotion. Additionally, they and most people in all the world all over, they connected worldly wealth to God's blessing. That if you have wealth, then that must mean that God loves you or blesses you. This mindset is pretty simple. And it is basically the same mindset that drives what we call prosperity theology or prosperity gospel here in the United States in the 21st century. Sadly, I would say probably the biggest Christian export from the United States in the last 40 years or so has been prosperity theology or prosperity gospel. And it is, it's not good. The teaching of prosperity gospel goes against much of what we find in the scriptures. I think it takes passages out of context and uses them in a way that is not to be used. But this idea that many of the religious leaders in Jesus's day carried is very much the same as what we see in prosperity gospel. So what is this idea? Well, the idea is simple. If I am wealthy, then that must mean that I am blessed by God and that I'm in good standing with him. And if that's true, if that teaching is true, which I don't believe that teaching is true, but if that is true, then what would I want? I would want to be wealthy because then it proves that I am righteous. Or in the context of today, it proves that I have the right kind of faith or I am faithful. But Jesus turns this idea upside down just as you expect that he would in this passage, where we read this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus presents to us here in these verses, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, he presents us with a call to having a proper focus. This isn't entirely or necessarily about wealth or riches, though it is, but it, it really is a call to have a proper focus. The wording in the original Greek, this was originally written in Greek, 
It is as if Jesus says, treasure not up for yourselves treasures on earth. If I believe that wealth and earthly treasures are proof of my righteousness or faithfulness, and they are proof of God's blessing, then you can be sure that my focus will probably be on my holdings, on my treasures, on my wealth here upon the earth. But Jesus says, do not treasure earthly treasures because they're temporary. They, they rust, they get destroyed by moths, they get stolen by thieves. From the beginning of this sermon, Jesus has been seeking to shift the focus of his followers away from this world and to another. We saw that back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the very opening words of the Sermon on the Mount are redirecting the attention of Jesus' followers to the kingdom of heaven. But my flesh is pretty much always focused on this world, as you would expect. My flesh only knows this world and will only know this world. This flesh will not go on into eternity. So it is entirely absorbed with this world, focused on this world. And not only is my flesh focused on this world, but the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, it is structured in such a way, especially 21st century Western culture here in the United States, it is structured in such a way so as to constantly keep me focused upon the treasures that I treasure here and now in this life. So Jesus aims to change my focus because Jesus makes very clear, my focus determines my devotion. We attend to those things that we give our attention to. Jesus says it like this in this passage, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is that? Well, my focus, what I'm focused on, that determines my devotion. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now listen, this teaching does not mean that earthly wealth and treasures are necessarily wrong or evil. Jesus' focus isn't really on treasure or wealth as much as it is upon devotion and loyalty. One commentator writing on this passage of scripture, he wrote this, it is not so much the disciples' wealth that Jesus is concerned with as he is his loyalty. Materialism is in direct conflict with loyalty to God, or at least I would say it can be. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it, it certainly can be. If we have a, a fully materialistic bent, then we're going to have a serious problem. It's going to distract us from our devotion to the Lord. In one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read these words, but those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful desires, lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In the same exact passage there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the temporary nature, the temporal nature of our earthly treasures. He says this in 1 Timothy 6 verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. So having food and clothing with these we shall be content. So I think it's important to note, earthly goods and treasures, they are not in and of themselves, bad or wrong or evil, but they are or they can become dangerous in my life. If we attend to or give our attention entirely to these things, to our earthly things that we possess, thinking that these things are going to satisfy or that they are going to be a proof of our faith and faithfulness to God or that they are going to reveal that we have God's divine blessing in our life, then we are really in a danger zone if we are thinking like that. So. 
Jesus' teaching here is important. He continues in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 6, going back to Matthew chapter 6. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now I think this is kind of a strange saying from Jesus that the eye of the body is like the lamp of the body. And when I, I read this, I, you, you can kind of get the wrong image or the wrong picture as if the eye of the body is like a lamp shining out into the world from you. But that's not really what Jesus is picturing here in this passage. He says that the lamp of the body is the eye by which light comes into your body to either make you, your body, full of light or full of darkness. Now, again, I believe that this goes back to the idea of focus. Our eyes are exactly what we use to focus upon things that are in this world. This is where our attention really is found. We, we look upon things, and so we set our attention or our gaze upon something. Your focus or your gaze will be upon the things that you attend to, those things that you treasure. And if your focus is on good things, those things will enlighten your body and your life such that, as Jesus says, you are full of light. But if your eye or your focus, you are intently focused upon, the gaze of your life is on the wrong things or it's inordinately focused on certain things because good things can become bad things if you make them the thing. And we've got to be really careful about this. So if your eye is focused upon, your attention is given to the wrong thing, then as Jesus says, your whole body will be full of darkness. My focus affects all of my being is what Jesus is teaching here. Such that if my focus is off, if it's wrong, if my eye is bad, as Jesus says, then my whole body will be full of darkness. The mindset of many religious people in Jesus's day and in our day as well here 2000 years later was that faith faithfulness and blessing would be measured by how much wealth that you have, how many things that you have. Therefore, people both then and now, they would be focused on earthly wealth and treasure. Those things would absorb their attention. They would attend to and focus their attention on those things because they thought these are the things that, you know, make me righteous. And that kind of focus can have a detrimental effect in our lives. It can be quite harmful to us. So Jesus continues in verse 24, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus returns to the discussion of wealth here with that word mammon. That word mammon, it means money, wealth, or riches. Previously we read, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And now Jesus informs us that it is impossible for us to serve both God and riches. Now, I, I, I do think that you can serve God with riches, but you can't serve God and riches and be totally devoted to both of these things. So what is Jesus talking about here in this passage? Again, I think he is talking about the issue of love, loyalty, and devotion, the focus of our lives. My focus determines my devotion, but also my devotion cannot be divided between God and riches. And this is a hard truth for us, but it is a very important truth for us. My flesh wants a lot of things, and this world has a lot of things to offer, and our culture is fixated upon things and constantly marketing those things to us. And we can trick ourselves into thinking that 
those things that are available to us in this world that my flesh wants, that those things are going to satisfy me, that they're going to bring satisfying joy, or that those things are going to be indicators of God's blessing upon my faith and my faithfulness. But the love of those things and devotion to those things, these temporary things that can be destroyed by moth or rust or stolen by thieves, those things, as I'm devoted to those things or in love with those things, they can hinder my walk and relationship with God. A wrong focus upon riches and wealth can become a great temptation and a snare, leading, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, to many harmful desires and lusts, which can overtake and drown our lives. As I said previously, riches are not bad or evil in and of themselves, but they can be dangerous. So the clear exhortation is to not be divided in our affection and in our devotion to the Lord in our lives. But the inherent challenge in that exhortation, don't be, you know, given to, divided in your affection or given entirely to these things. The inherent challenge in that exhortation is a normal human concern. If I'm not going to be focused on all of these things that this world has to offer, then you begin to worry. What about my life? How will I take care of myself? How will I provide for myself? Isn't that where your mind goes? That's where my mind goes. The world around us, especially in 2022, is often very focused upon possessions and riches and wealth, bank accounts, 401ks, real estate, interest rates, inflation, all the things. And it's been even more difficult the last four or five months because we've been seeing the increase of inflation, the increase of interest rates. Things are getting expensive and it's challenging and people start to get worried that there's going to be a recession coming. There was a lot of stuff in the news this last week because GDP was down in the first quarter of 2022 and there's Deutsche Bank and other banks are saying we're headed towards a big recession. So there's people that are kind of concerned, even though things seem to be going pretty well right now, there's still kind of this like undercurrent of concern. And so people can be or begin to be very focused on their riches and their wealth and their bank accounts and all that sort of stuff. And we wonder, well, how are we going to take care of ourselves? We worry about these things. For a lot of people right now, there are a lot of cares and concerns and worries around these things. But Jesus has a word on this. In Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles or unbelievers seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. This is an essential and important lesson for us to learn. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. What things? Well, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to sleep. All, all the things that we worry about and get consumed with. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What is this 
but a commandment to have the right focus. A proper focus will direct me into the blessedness of peace and rest. And when I say the blessedness of peace and rest, Jesus says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. He does not want us to be just absorbed with concern over all of these things. And so he says, do not worry, but seek first the kingdom. And I believe that this is an important truth for us to learn, especially for such a time as this, as we are in the midst of all the things that we are experiencing in our culture. So many of us, or the people that we know and interact with, are struggling and striving to get and to have the right degree, the right job, the right house, the right spouse, the new car, the better computer, a nicer watch, whatever it may be. And inevitably, every time, every time we see someone make it, someone gets the very thing that they've been striving and struggling to get. They've been devoting themselves to getting this career or getting that award or whatever it may be. They've been striving and struggling to get all that. Every single time they get it, what is the testimony that we, we hear in the interviews or whatever it may be or the books that they write? Their testimony is always the same. It doesn't satisfy. There's always something more. There's always something better. The thing that you worked so hard to get, it breaks, it gets scratched, it gets stinged, whatever it is. Those things don't satisfy. And they won't ultimately satisfy. All you have to do is go and read the 3,000-year-old book of Ecclesiastes. And you'll see very, very clear that the story hasn't changed in thousands of years. And the struggling and the striving. It only leads to a life of less peace and less rest and less joy and more stress and difficulty. So what is the alternative? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Or as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you shall appear with him in glory. My focus determines my devotion. If I am absorbed with and focused upon my riches and my wealth, well, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And those things will deceive you, and they will pull you away from devotion to God. And in that place, you will not experience joy or satisfaction. You'll experience stress and worry and anxiety and fear and all those things. God doesn't want you to experience that. My focus determines my devotion and it affects my entire being. My entire life comes into disarray or can be bettered depending upon my focus. If I'm setting my focus on things above, then it'll change my entire being, everything about my life. And my devotion, it can't be equally divided between riches and between the Lord. It, it has to be committed entirely to the Lord. And as I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he, as a loving Father in heaven, takes care of the things that I have need of. So these are important things. Proper focus, as I have the right focus upon the Lord, it, it helps me to come into the blessed experience of his grace and his rest and his peace and his joy. And, and I would think you probably want to experience God's grace and his peace and his rest and his joy this week. And so I want to encourage you to spend some time with the Lord this week. Don't just do this one time a week on Sunday or whenever you watch this video, but actually spend some time with the Lord. In prayer, reading his word, setting your focus upon him and see if what he has said is not true, that he will help us to not be worried and anxious, fearful. Father God, I pray that you would work in our lives, that you would continue the work of transformation, that you promised you will be faithful to complete until the day that we see you. But Lord, work that out in us so that we would reflect your glory
to the world around us, that people who know us would see you working in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.